listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn once again. I started to say for a final time, um, that may be a little dramatic. Uh, We will likely return here at some point, uh, but uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 if you have your Bibles today. We have finally made it to the finish line, so to speak. Uh, I hope that you do not view this sermon series as a biblical marathon that you have been forced to endure. Uh, That maybe over the last several weeks you felt like I've hit the wall. Uh, My attention span is only uh, so long. Uh, What you might need to know is that there are some preachers out there who have spent two or three years unpacking a book of the Bible. Uh, That's usually the book of Romans or something of that nature. But um, we normally don't uh, cover a book of the Bible uh, uh, over this length of time. For nearly eight months now, we have been studying this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. We took a brief break back during uh, Easter. But really, uh, for all those other weeks, we have been opening... Uh, This letter, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, through the pen of the Apostle Paul. As I was preparing this morning's message, I couldn't help but think that if it were left to me, uh, it would be nice if Paul would have just ended with chapter 15. Death is your victory. Where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The end. I mean, that's probably the way I would have done it. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. But then you turn to chapter 16, and it's like, oh, yeah, don't forget to take up the offering, and here are my travel plans. It's like, wow. But then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, really, the Christian life is largely lived out in what we would call the mundane. I mean, certainly we know that uh, there are mountaintop experiences. Uh, Certainly we've all uh, experienced the valley, (laughs) But much of the Christian life is just lived out in the ordinary day-to-day stuff of life. Let's face it, the Christian life is pretty much every day rise and grind, as they say. Um, Eugene Peterson refers to discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, consistency. And I think most of us would have to to be honest and say that over the course of our Christian lives, there have been far too many times where we, where we were up here, Man, we would all like to stay up here, kind of on the mountaintop, and those exhilarating experiences, maybe after youth camp or a big retreat, or maybe just a particular season of great joy and all those kinds of things. We certainly don't want to dwell down in the valley, but what we really have needed most often in our Christian lives is just grit, just the endurance of continuing to passionately pursue Jesus. Um, And so I hope and pray that uh, our study of 1 Corinthians has better equipped you to do that. And so let's look together at the 24 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. 
I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, remember him? In one of those earlier chapters, he says, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Here's his final greetings. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be be love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so Paul concludes this first letter to the church at Corinth. Now, I don't know about you, but God has certainly used our study of this letter to work me over, as we sometimes say. Uh, He's convicted me so many times uh, in this book, and I I can't tell you the number of times or occasions when sitting in my study, I found myself trembling a bit, knowing that the Apostle Paul has some punchy and some hard things to say. But here we are now, we've made it, we're at the end of the book, and Paul closes with some very practical teaching for the church that certainly has strong application for us today. And so as I mentioned earlier, one of the things he mentions here is money. Let's look at that first of all, money and the church of God. And we preachers are sometimes given a bad rap. Um, It usually comes from those who rarely have ever attend church. And it seems like they would, I don't know, it's kind of weird how it happens, but they come on the one or two, maybe three or four Sundays a year when we do mention money. And then they say, whenever I go to that church, all that guy ever talks about is money. Um, that, That is really not the case. And I think most of you could attest to that. But I will say that when we do come to it in scripture, in in a text like this, we're going to cover it because that's important. So he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. When you see the words there, now concerning, uh, we've noticed it several times in 1 Corinthians here. That indicates that Paul is actually responding to a question that has reached him from the Corinthians. And so they're asking for some clarification. He's previously given instructions about this collection. 
Verse number three tells us that it is a collection for the saints in Jerusalem particularly. Now we know a little bit historically of, of something that's been going on. In Acts chapter 11, verse number 28, the church in Antioch had a prophet named Agabus who prophesied that a famine would overtake the region. And so the believers in Antioch started what today we would call a love offering uh, or a collection and sent it to Judea, to the believers in Jerusalem, we are told, by the hand of Barnabas and Paul. And it became Paul's custom then in all of his churches uh, to continue that pattern. Remember, Paul was a church planter. And so this pattern continues in the churches that God uh, enabled Paul to plant. And so he tells us here in verse number one that he gave the same instructions to the churches of Galatia. Uh, if you move into 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, we're told the churches in Macedonia participated. If you look at Paul's writing to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, he tells us that one of those churches in Macedonia has been participating from the get-go, not only sending relief to the saints in Judea, but also in maintaining the Apostle Paul's gospel ministry. And so I want us to notice that this is a pattern that you see across congregations. Um, and I want us to see three things from these first four verses about giving in the New Testament church. We, we, again, we see it that it is a pattern across congregations. It was a pattern for Corinthians and for the Galatians and for the Macedonians. It was a pattern in Antioch. The churches together are sharing and bearing one another's burdens. And so the churches in the New Testament, you see, are not radically independent congregations. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time today talking about the autonomy of the local church and those sorts of things. We would uh, certainly say that we are an autonomous local church, and so we're not governed by a, a, a denomination or anything of that nature. But we do choose to cooperate with other churches of like faith uh, under a, and around a common mission. Uh, and that's kind of the pattern that we see here. So they shared this common mission. They were participating together in common relief, supporting one another under a common like what we call our cooperative program. So if you're not familiar with that language, just know that it is the giving mechanism through which Southern Baptist churches um, pool their resources, you might say, uh, for the sake of mission. For the sake of the gospel. And so when you give through First Baptist Church Van Alstine, a portion of that, if you look at our budget, it goes literally around the world through the International Mission Board, through our state missions uh, endeavors, throughout North America. In fact, whenever there's a hurricane that hits, like it has this last week, the Gulf Coast, and you see those yellow hats show up, okay, most people know that those people are associated with disaster relief. And that disaster relief is associated with our Southern Baptist Convention. Those efforts are funded through the cooperative program. And so while we may not have physically been able to go to New Orleans this last week, in many ways, we did go to New Orleans this last week. And I would simply say this to some of you who are maybe in a phase of life where you're retired, maybe you have a little more freedom with your time and that kind of thing, but you still have a lot of energy, you got a lot of oomph, still have a lot to offer, um, disaster relief is a great way to be involved in kingdom work. Um, I am uh, certified as a chaplain through disaster relief. And so over the last two or three weeks, we've gotten pleas for people to come and serve. And there are a lot of different ways to serve in disaster relief. They have feeding units. They have mud out units. They have 
a lot of different things that you can do. You would not be required to go on every deployment, but if you were available uh, and it fit with your schedule and, and you were willing to go, then certainly there's training available and I can hook you up. And so that's just one small example uh, of the way that our cooperative program works. Whenever you, whenever you see one of our missionaries, one of our missions partners, uh, you can know that there are churches much like ours, while we're not all the same, uh, I often say it this way, we do have some weird cousins out there, okay? But we do have a common purpose, a common vision, and that is to advance the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that together. We can do far more together than any one of us can do alone, is how we often say it. And so the churches here, they're mutually connected in love and in common mission under this recognized leadership. There's a pattern. It was normative for the churches of that day. Notice, secondly, it was this giving was to be planned. This wasn't just ha haphazard. If you look at verse number two, it says, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So the first day of the week, since the day that Jesus came and stood in the upper room where the disciples were gathered, remember, with the doors closed for fear of the Jews, that first Easter Sunday night, we would say, since then, the first day of the week has been the day for Christian assembly for worship. We call it the Lord's Day. In Acts chapter 20, for example, the Apostle Paul, he reached the city of Troas, but he stayed seven days, according to verse number 7 of Acts chapter 20 there, in order that on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, when we were gathered together to break bread, it says, he could preach to them. And he went on. Remember, that was the occasion when he went on until midnight. Okay, so if you're ever inclined to think that Pastor Mike preaches too long, I'm going to refer you to Acts chapter 20, okay? Sunday, the first day of the week, is the day of Christian assembly for worship. That's not to suggest that is the only day on which we can worship, but it is a day set aside for us to worship. It is to be the day upon which Christians are to give uh, their support for the saints, the relief of the poor, the cause of the gospel. And so Paul is saying here, make it a normal practice. Plan to give in this way, he says. Notice also in verse number two, he says, store it up so that there will be no collecting when I come. come, come. Store it up is connected to the word for a treasury. Okay, today we would uh, simply call it a bank account. Okay, uh, And so uh, that's essentially what Paul I want you to give through your local church, your local assembly. The local church is to make plans to store it up in some fashion so that when I come, he says, I don't have to take up another collection from all the various households of the Corinthian assembly. Instead, we can receive and administer the gift in that way. And so believers are to plan. They're to plan to give regularly. And the church as a whole is to plan to store it up in their treasury and administer it appropriately. That it, It's a pattern. It's normative across the churches. It's planned and it's regular. Then notice also it's to be proportional. You see that again in verse number two. On the first day of the week, he says, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper. And we often, whenever we're talking about giving, especially uh, certainly of our uh, financial resources, the word tithe comes up. It's a word that simply means tenth. So we talk about tithes and offerings. And that's certainly fair enough as it goes. Uh, but of course, tithing really is the Old Testament pattern. 
But you should know this, that three tithes were, were typically paid. There was a tithe to the Levites, there was a tithe to the temple, and there's a tithe for the poor. And so scholars tell us that it worked out to probably somewhere in the region of about 23%. None of you look really impressed with that this morning. 23%. Um, that, that was the Old Testament pattern and certainly a good rule of thumb. People often ask me, do you think that we should tithe? And when I explain, well, a tithe means tenth, I think that is a good starting point. Um, but the New Testament pattern is actually much more radical than that. So if you're inclined to quickly say, well, I'm no longer under the law, that's Old Testament. Well, understand this, the New Testament pattern for giving is actually much more radical than that. It's a, it's a, it's a different principle. It's a principle of radical, sacrificial generosity. And if you want a little example of that, you look to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, if you want to see this example of radical, sacrificial generosity. Or you could look to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the churches of Macedonia and their extraordinary example. And so we begin, certainly, by looking to Christ, who, Scripture tells us, though He was rich, for our sakes He became poor, that by His poverty we might become rich. Now, that is obviously not just talking about money. Okay, That's not talking just about your bank account. But we look at what Jesus has done for us, and we say, were the whole realm of nature mine, as the song says. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. That's the New Testament pattern for stewardship. So we give not only from our resources, in fact... True biblical stewardship teaching that only talks about money is really limited. You're really missing something. So we give not only of our financial resources, we give of ourselves with nothing held back. And all of it is His who gave His all for us. And so radical, costly, sacrificial generosity so that we're not asking, what is the minimum that I can legitimately give? No, what we're asking instead is, how may I give in such a way that reflects my devotion to my Savior who gave His all for me? Now, maybe you're wondering, what does Paul mean by this principle of proportionality when he says here, give as each may prosper? Here's what I think he means. He means. He means. He's got a particular percentage in mind. I think what he really means is, take a good, honest look at the way God has prospered you. See how much He has blessed you. Think of the abundance that the Lord has lavished upon you, His kindness and the prosperity that you enjoy. And then ask yourself whether your own pleasures have a higher claim on your money than the cause of Jesus Christ. Whether your own pleasures have a higher claim on your time than does the cause of Jesus Christ. Do your own pleasures have a higher claim on you? Would someone looking at your bank account or looking at your calendar, for example, conclude that Jesus Christ, in fact, holds first place in the priorities of your life and in your heart? And so Paul gives us a word here, an exhortation about giving and the church of God. He's talking about a radical generosity, not just of our money, but of our time, our, our talents and all of those things. And what you didn't notice, secondly, he addresses mission and the sovereignty of God. 
verses 5 through 9. There's a balance here that I want us to be sure we observe. On the one hand, he exhorts us about giving. We see that clearly. The church needs resources. Uh, there's gospel work to be funded, to be sure. We're in the midst ourselves of a building program. We call it the Joshua Project. And God has been graciously, incrementally, uh, even as impatient as we may grow, been providing for the needs of that building project. And, and I can say, uh, by the grace of God, we're getting closer all the time to that becoming a reality. We now have an official uh, covenant agreement with Lionheart Academies. And, and so there, there are bold steps being taken. And, and I believe that in the fairly near future, you're going to be able to drive down Cartwright and look over to your left there. Uh, and you're going to be able to go, wow. That's not just a field of wheat anymore or corn or whatever's been over there, all right? God's raising up something. And so it, it takes resources to make that happen. There's gospel work to be funded. There's mercy to be provided. So we need those resources. Without it, we can't do it. That's one part of this. But then on the other hand, he's going to show us that the work ultimately belongs to God. And so there's no leverage that we can apply which will make the church grow. Or see sinners saved. Salvation ultimately belongs to the Lord. And that marvelous balance is really, really important. Because the temptation is strong when you're in church leadership to try all sorts of man-made methods and all sorts of man-made programs to somehow grow the church. Now, I'm not discounting our faithfulness and the part that God uh, has designed and ordained that we play in advancing His kingdom but the bottom line is, this is the Lord's work. That's what Paul is saying here. And so that's why we get Paul's travel plans. We get his itinerary. He says, I'm planning to come and see you, he says, going through Macedonia. If I can, I'd love to come and spend the winter with you. Because I, I, I don't want to just pay you a fleeting visit. I want to spend some quality time with you because I care about you. And then he tells them a little bit about what he's doing now. He says, I'm in Ephesus. And as I write this, I'm going to stay on till Pentecost because, according to verse number 9, notice, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And we take that in. We get a glimpse into Paul's missionary plans. And as we see that summary of his intentions, his, his travel plans, notice the little notes and acknowledgments of the sovereignty of God. I love this language. Verse number 7, he says, I hope to spend some time with you. What? If the Lord permits, you skip down to verse number nine, a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me. And there are many adversaries open the door. No, the Ephesians didn't open the door. In fact, there are so many who are opposed to him in Ephesus trying to slam the door in his face. But God has opened the door wide for effective ministry. So what's the message? Well, it's not hard to see. Ultimately, salvation belongs to the Lord, and the cause and the advancement of the Lord's work and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ belongs in His hands. And we must be careful that we are not driven by the typical metrics that are commonly used to measure success, especially in our part of the world. We sometimes call that the three Bs. Bodies, buildings, and bucks. <laughs> I mean, to measure success in the church, many people believe that you just that, that those are the only things you look at. Well, what's the size of your budget? How, how many square foot? You know, how many square feet do you have? And all, and all of those sorts of things. Not that those things are unimportant, 
But that's not any kind of guarantee of gospel success in the mission of God. Now, ultimately, it is all if God permits, as God opens doors. And so we need to be together praying regularly that God opens doors for his word in Van Alstine and around the world. It's his work and we are hands. And so we see money and the church of God, mission and the sovereignty of God. Then I want you to notice this big section here in the middle, ministry and the servants of God. Keep in mind how Paul started this letter. There was a a lot of division in the church at Corinth. We've said all along, this was a messed up church. And and one of the indications of that was that they were divided. One of the first things that he addresses is how they were divided over leadership. And so you'll remember from those opening chapters, uh, they're taken up with Paul trying to help the Corinthians pass their arrogant, prideful, boastful divisiveness. You remember what they were saying? Oh, I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Christ. They were were trying to claim some of the glory that attached itself to their favorite teacher or uh, you might say celebrity, so to speak, to lend some credence to their personal party, their little schismatic group. That's how they were looking at leadership. Now, remember, we unpacked how that was very much a part of the culture of that day. It was not uncommon for people in that day to attach themselves to a particular teacher and to personally, individually support that teacher, even financially. And so you can see the depths to which they would become divided. Well, my teacher's better than your teacher, this sort of thing. But Paul here presents a different model of leadership. I can't help but wonder what the conversation would be like if the Apostle Paul could be here with us today and I could say to him, Hey, Paul, what do you think about grabbing a cup of coffee tomorrow morning down here at the Honeybean? And we start a conversation. I say, hey, hey, I'm just just curious. What do you think about the celebrity culture that seems to be so common within the church today here in particularly North America? How do you you think Paul would feel about that? In this day and age where it seems like it's so easy because of social media and technology and all these sorts of things for, for people to build a platform or a name for themselves. And we're seeing some of the negative fallout of some of that kind of thinking, that kind of motivation. And so Paul here, he offers a very different model of leadership. He commends leaders to them, but for very different reasons. Not because they were impressive or dramatic or charismatic or powerful personalities. Not because of the force of their their rhetoric or their imposing demeanor, but for very different reasons. The leaders that Paul urges the Corinthians to care for and to help and to honor and to submit to and to recognize are men like Timothy. Look at verse number 10. Help him, he says. Don't look down upon him. Don't despise him. Help him, help him, help him. According to verse 10, he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Men like Apollos, verse number 12, where he describes uh, Apollos as our brother. Apollos, a brother among brothers. These leaders, he says, devote themselves to the service of the saints. They are fellow workers and laborers. That that phrase, that terminology is so critically important. It's the same word the disciples use in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus asked them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. Remember that? And they sort of look at him in frustration as if to say, but Lord, we've been busy all night. And here you come telling us to 
to do it a different way. We've worked hard at our nets all night and we've caught nothing. That's the word. They've been laboring at their nets. It's not glamorous. It comes without any prestige. They're just laborers, you see. Not, not known for their power or their insight or their strategic brilliance. They're singled out because they are servants. Like the household of Stephanus in verses 15 and 16. Men like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus who are to receive the recognition of the church not because they're great or, or famous, you might see, say, because they're lowly. Not because they're mighty, but because they're servants. Remember the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself who said, whoever wishes to be first among you must be least and the servant of all. Right? That goes against the values of the world. And if you know much about the teaching of the Lord Jesus, you know that more often than not, his teaching turned what we would call conventional wisdom, worldly thinking, on its head. While the world would tell us, well, you've got to climb your way up at the ladder, and you've got to have, you know, in the, I mean, a lot of good things, but when taken in the, in the wrong direction can lead to real trouble here. And so it, it, what Paul is saying here is countercultural in that day and in our day. It's not usually how we identify leaders and people that we want to follow and emulate. I think back to the Old Testament. You remember when the prophet Samuel came to Jesse's farm. and He was looking for a new king for Israel. And Eliab, the firstborn, steps forward. And Samuel is impressed. Remember, he thinks to himself, just look at this guy. I mean, typical QB1 right here, man, this guy. I mean, 6'4", about 2.30. I mean, look at this guy. Surely, surely he's the Lord's anointed. He's the complete package. He's, he's powerful and, and impressive and articulate. This, this has got to be the guy. And you remember what the Lord said to Samuel? Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? On the heart. And each of the sons of Jesse were paraded in turn in front of Samuel, none of them chosen. Poor David, of course. He's utterly ruled out. I mean, too young. He's insignificant. He's a shepherd out in the fields. He could never be a king. But when at last he is called, the Lord told Samuel, Arise and anoint him king, for it is he. He's your man. That's how God works, isn't it? It's not always the great and the good, the sophisticated, the powerful. It's the servant and the least of these. Give recognition to such, Paul is saying here. Follow these men. Help them on their way. Submit to them. Be subject to such as these. It's like the old song says, when others saw a shepherd boy, God saw a king. And that's precisely the example of the Lord Jesus, 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 Jesus. Scripture tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said he had no form or beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. We esteemed him not. We nailed him to the cross, forsook him, denied him, rejected him. And that's God's way, isn't it? 
That's the kind of leadership that, that that's God's definition of true greatness, the servant of all. We need to pick our leaders well, based not on their pedigree or their personality even, but on this one question above all others, are they fellow workers and laborers? And I would just say on a personal note this morning, would you pray, if you don't already pray, for your pastors, elders, deacons, other leaders within our body, that the Lord would keep us from the allure of the praise of men or from the counterfeit paradigm of leadership that the world provides? That he would make us the servants, the fellow workers, brothers among brothers, laboring for your good. Would you pray for and support our pastoral residency program as we have the opportunity to help prepare servant leaders for a lifetime of gospel ministry? Money and the church of God, mission and the plan of God, ministry and the servants of God. And let's look finally at maturity in the family of God. I want us to look at two places here. It's being somewhat divided. In verses 13 and 14, there's some very practical, easy-to-understand instructions for Christian maturity, Christian fidelity uh, for us at an individual level. Then in verses 19 through 24, Paul reminds us that we need one another, that we're to live out the Christian life in the context of the family of the people of God. We, we often call it community. So I want you to notice Christian maturity and fidelity. Notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I come to texts like this, I feel like it's like a pregame talk by a coach, you know? I mean, like, this is the kind of stuff that you just want to hang in the locker room wall, you know? This is the kind of stuff that you're slapping on the way out to the, to the field. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Be watchful, vigilant. If you take a concordance this afternoon when you get home and you've got a, a, a spare few minutes or so, it's a fascinating study just to look at those words. Be watchful. Keep alert. Watch and pray. You'll find it's actually a recurring theme throughout the New Testament when it gives practical instruction on living the Christian life. Nowhere in Scripture do you find that we're to just kind of coast through the Christian life. You know, almost like it's some sort of roller coaster where, where you just get on and you just ride this thing out. Yeah, there's some exhilarating drops and, and all those sort of things, but, but you're just kind of coasting along. That, that's not the Christian life. The idea behind those exhortations is always that we are fundamentally at war. War. That the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And, and so because of that, we need to stay alert. You must watch and pray lest we fall into temptation, Jesus told the disciples. Be watchful, Paul tells the Corinthians here. There's no slumbering at your post in the Christian life. You need to be vigilant. Temptation is real. The enemy is real. The flesh is weak. Several years ago, and pretty regularly, God, by His grace, gave me the opportunity to speak at a number of student conventions uh, in various parts of the country, even other parts of the world. And in that context called Secrets That Satan Doesn't Want You to Know. And a lot of times I would start that message by asking students to, uh, to just kind of give a description of what they think of when they think of the devil. 
And in almost every setting, no matter where I was, someone would inevitably stand up and say something like, I think of a guy in a little red suit with horns and a pitchfork who sits on your shoulder and says, steal the cookie, man. You know, something like that. Almost like some kind of a little cartoon caricature. And, and, and if most of us were asked to draw a picture of kind of what we think of when we think of the devil, we might draw something like that. Well, that's problematic. Okay, because the enemy, Satan himself, is very real and, he's, and he has a very real desire to destroy our lives. That's why Scripture tells us that we are to be vigilant, to stand firm in the faith. It refers to the, 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 the doctrine, the teaching contained in the Scriptures. He wants us to remain immovably fixed upon the rock of biblical truth. We're to care about doctrine and about orthodoxy. And then he says, act like men. He says, man up. Put your big boy pants on and march into the fray. You're going to need some courage. It's going to be hard. The Christian life will be painful and costly. And so we need to be ready for it. Stand firm. Be strong. Bow up. Then he gives us this marvelous balancing note. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I get myself in trouble many times, it's because I, I'm, I'm prone to extremes. And so Paul balances this out. You see, here's what true manhood actually looks like, biblically speaking. He says, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. <laughs> let love animate your every action. Let love be the characteristic mark of everything you do and all that you say in the service of your master. Remember this truth. You can be saying the right thing, but if you are consistently saying it the wrong way, you are wrong. I don't know why, but I think of okra when I think of this truth. In my opinion, you're all entitled to my opinion this morning, there's only one way to eat okra, and that's fried. Okay? Any other way is just wrong. That slimy, snotty, whatever, that boiled stuff, you can have it all day long. Only one way, and that's fried, right? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes we, we approach the truth, and we approach it in a way that is so abrasive, that is so, so prideful, so arrogant and everything. While we may be fundamentally saying the right thing, we're just not saying it the right way. It's not prepared and served the right way so that it's in any way, shape, or form palatable to someone. It's actually repulsive to people. And I see this all the time on social media. Man, we got some straight-up keyboard warriors in the church today. And they sound so tough and so brave and so, so strong. And i got to think in most cases, they probably wouldn't say those things. They might say them, but they sure wouldn't say it the same way if they actually were sitting across from a person enjoying a cup of coffee together. You know what I mean? So be very careful. He gives us this amazing balancing note. Yes, be strong. Yes, stand firm in the faith. Yes, stand firmly on the truth. But you better make sure that everything you do ultimately be done in love. 
24, we see the family of the people of God. He says, the churches of Asia send greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And we all love to read that verse and go, oh, that's so funny. You know, um, this is a family. This is a family. Culturally, that seems odd to us, obviously. Uh, although I've preached in a couple of places where I got four more, far more sugars on my cheek that night than I ever dreamed I would going into that place. Uh, thankfully, most of the people who kissed me on the cheek were older ladies who were, you know, it was cool with my wife. Um, uh, that, that, that particular thing is maybe not so common to us, but the principle is, is very much there. He says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. They cared deeply about one another. You see, we need each other, don't we? You can't do verses 13 and 14 on your own. You simply cannot be watchful as you need to be without brothers and sisters who've got your back because there's a war going on and we need one another. Christian maturity, mark my words, is a group project. It's a group project. You can't do it on your own. You can't use the church as an occasional provider of religious goods and services and expect to grow in Christian maturity and faithfulness to the Savior. No, Paul is saying here, this is the place. These are the people among whom you're called to live and serve. And together, you will grow as you learn to love one another. And pursue Jesus together. In fact, verse number 22 tells us Paul writes this little postscript. He takes the pen himself and he writes these last few words himself. And in this little postscript, he offers a word of warning. This is sobering. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. He's coming. Be warned. A loveless heart faces the judgment of God. You can't say you love Jesus and at the same time hate your brother. The truth isn't in you. We must first and most importantly learn to love the Savior passionately who loved and gave Himself for us. And then because we love Him, in turn we love those whom He loves. The people of God. Notice the very last words with which this letter concludes. They're the same words fundamentally with which the letter begins. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. And now he concludes, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. We know that the Apostle Paul, God used the Apostle Paul to write much of our New Testament. And what you will find is that the Apostle Paul consistently beat the gospel drum. Like the Energizer Bunny continually, regardless of the, the specific situation or issue that he's addressing, he continually points people to Jesus. This is no different. If there's one thing that we must be sure to grasp as we walk away from this study of 1 Corinthians, it's this, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. 
We can't ever hope to be radically generous and sacrificial without seeing what Christ has done in His generosity and self-giving love for us. We can't hope to be faithful in the mission to which He has called us without knowing that Christ has purchased for Himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We can't hope to be a servant-hearted ministry characterized by servant-hearted ministers in service, 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 seeing Jesus Himself as the great example of the suffering servant. We can never hope for Christian maturity unless as we seek to be watchful and stand firm and be strong and love one another, we do it while clinging to and resting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes a lot to help set this church in order. And you messed up, folks. You are messed up. And in many ways, as we've worked our way through this text over the last eight months, I don't know about you, but I see us in here. We don't always get it right. There's times and seasons where we're divided in ways we shouldn't be. Lots of stuff. And so let's together commit to walking in holiness as we together passionately pursue Jesus Christ. Love one another. Serve one another. Serving the body of Christ and advancing the gospel. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for how incredibly practical this ancient letter has become to us. When we recognize, Lord, that culturally there are some strange things found here in this letter to the Corinthians. If we're even a little bit intellectually honest, we can see the truth. The truth of who we are apart from Christ the truth of who we can be as we submit to Christ. Lord, we need your help. So in every way, Lord, help us to to close out this study with a firm resolve and a determination to be all that you want us to be, not just as individuals, but as a family of faith. Help us, Lord, to love the world in which you've placed us with the love of Christ. Forgive us, Lord, when we choose to maintain a a spirit of superiority. Lord, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, continue to humble us. And while we stand firm on the truth, help us to do it in such a way that it is not rejected because of us. We give you all the praise and the honor and the glory now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.